Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining. Today is an extremely awesome episode. We have Dr. Michael Sag. He's a medical doctor. He is an infectious disease specialist. He's been researching HIV and AIDS since the um, dawn of its existence. And he talks about the coronavirus. He currently works in an outpatient clinic treating patients with coronavirus. And he had coronavirus himself. So he has an extremely unique perspective on the virus, how it affects NFL uh, players, how it will affect the NFL in general, whether or not the NFL will be able to finish the season. And it was an overall just great interview. He's an extremely passionate guy. Um, I really hope that you enjoy this one. This is one of my favorite episodes we've done. He was an extremely good guest. Um, I can't say enough good things, nice things about him. He was really fun to talk to, and I think this is really informative. So hope you enjoy the listen. Hope you get enough information that's actionable for your fantasy leagues. And if not, if nothing else, I hope it's an entertaining listen because everybody's concerned about the coronavirus and this is some good information, whether you play fantasy football or not. So without further ado, here's Dr. Michael Sag. Welcome back to the Injury Prone Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Edwin Pores, Doctor of Physical Therapy, Physical Therapist, Medical Analyst at FantasyPoints.com. Today, we are going to get an absolute brainful of information. Our guest received his BS in Chemistry with honors at Tulane. He earned his medical degree from honors at the University of Louisville. He completed his residency and infectious disease and molecular virology fellowship, trained at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He conceived the concept of an HIV outpatient clinic. He's participated in many studies of anti-retroviral therapy, as well as novel treatments for opportunistic infections. He's published over 450 articles in peer-reviewed journals. In 2014, he was the Castle Connolly National Physician of the Year and inducted into the Alabama Healthcare Hall of Fame. He's been awarded the Argus Awards. He's been awarded Argus Awards annually by the UAB Medical Students as Best Lecturer in Patient, Doctor, and Society module. He recently published a memoir entitled Positive. One Doctor's Encounters with Death, Life, and the U.S. Healthcare System. Now it's in second. Now in its second printing and directed to, directed. I'm sorry, the first inpatient study of seven of thirty antiretroviral drugs currently on the market. He also co-edited a textbook entitled AIDS Therapy. Now it's in, in its third edition and currently serves as an editor of the Sanford Guide for Antimicrobial Agents and the Sanford HIV Guide. He's an associate dean for Glo- uh, for Global Health Director and the UAB Center for AIDS Research Professor of Medicine. He is at msagmd on Twitter. I am super excited to talk to Dr. Michael S. Sag tonight. How are you doing, Doc? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you. I'm glad that you were able to join us. Um, you have obviously a, a an abundance of information and knowledge in your head. You've forgotten more about medicine and the healthcare field than I've learned. And so I'm super excited to chat and just just pick your brain about this entire situation we have going on with COVID. Um, I want to talk about, you know, why you're qualified to talk about COVID and, and, and maybe for the listeners who aren't as up to date on their uh, information from a medical side of things, maybe in, in plain language. But first, 
Are you a fantasy football or NFL fan? Oh, yeah. I love watching most any kind of football, but especially college and pro football. And being in Alabama, um, we don't have a pro team in the state. So what I do, actually, is I like following the players who used to play at the University of Alabama and at UAB and following their pro career. So in essence, I watch a lot of different teams. Uh, so it fits kind of a fantasy football model. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When you say that you don't have a professional team in the state of Alabama, what is that team over in Tuscaloosa called? <laughs> yeah, well, and I guess it depends on your definition of professional, right? So they, uh, they play uh, a pretty good brand of football, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. But yes, that's fun because you get, and that's the thing about being an Alabama fan and, or living in the state of Alabama, following them in general, uh, you get to follow a lot of players to a lot of different professional teams. Do you have a favorite Alabama player in the NFL right now? No, I, I kind of like all of them uh, in different kind of ways. I, I'm really curious to see how Tua is going to do in Miami. Uh, everyone was dissing him because of his injuries and whatnot. And you said uh, there's no such thing as being injury prone. I love that uh, because he's been labeled as such. I think the guy's a brilliant uh, passer, but you think even more so he's very smart, understands football well, and he's a wonderful human being. I think the people in Miami will get to know that over time. That's awesome to hear. I'm glad that you have uh, praise for him physically too, though. That's nice to hear. I got a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, backing from you, so that's cool. Yeah. So, what else? I mean, do you have so Alabama football? Obviously, you, and you don't really have an NFL team, right? Is that what you? Is that sort of did I did I interpret that correctly? I think that's accurate. Yeah. So, when was your last fantasy football team that you played? I'm embarrassed to say I don't. I haven't taken. That's okay. The time. If you don't. No, I really don't do fantasy football because I can just see it, and I know me well enough that if I jumped into that realm, I would be consumed twenty four seven and probably get nothing else done. No, so no, I no, Doc. Yeah, I'm, You're I a busy man. Too well. I know myself too well. You're a busy man, and it seems and and just based off the limited amount of information I know about you, yes, you would dive right in. You get consumed because everything you do sort of becomes this project that you that you bring to to gold, and you turn to gold because of all the all the stuff that I can just I know that you would probably consume yourself. Don't do it, Doc. Just stay away, yeah. honestly, because it 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 will consume your life. There yeah. are some people I know who are in 10, 15, 20 leagues, and I'm going, don't you have a day job? <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm a very binary guy. I'm either on or off. And if I'm on, I, I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to go after it. So, yeah, that, I worry about that for myself with fantasy football. Absolutely. So, and I, like I said, I wanted to touch on explaining your credentials and ex explain to the listeners who might not fully understand or comprehend anti-retro uh, rival, blah, 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 I can't even say it myself. Easy for you to say, you know, antiretroviral therapies, viruses, how that relates to what the coronavirus is. And just tell us a little bit about why you're qualified to talk about this today. Well, first off, I love the question because it allows me to point out that no one is an expert in a disease when it first arrives and it's never been seen by humans before. Think about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right? So there are people who study coronavirus and they're bona fide virologists who have done that. Uh, through the years, uh, the common cold is a coronavirus. We know about SARS-1 that was in 2003, MERS in 20, that's a medica, uh, Mediterranean um, uh, SARS-type virus um, that, that happened, Middle East virus that happened in that time in 2012. 
But this virus, nobody by definition was an expert when it first started. But a lot of us have expertise working in viral infections. In my case, it was HIV or is HIV. I also work with hepatitis C. The take-home point principles of virology are pretty consistent virus to virus. There's, of course, nuances and differences. But if you understand basically the life cycle of a virus and then how it's transmitted, what are receptors for accepting the virus in the body, and then how the virus might cause disease, that gives you puts you on the road to expertise. And in my case, uh, I actually had this infection back in early March. So I had a close encounter of the first kind um, with this virus about uh, March 12th or 13th and had 14 days of illness that was just pure hell. I was able to stay home. I didn't have to go into the hospital. But I want to tell you, those eight nights in a row where I would just be suffering from what are, what I would call cytokine storms, what does that mean? It means you get really sick and your, your immune system kicking out all these chemicals that cause fever, chills, muscle aches, body aches, shortness of breath. And the worst thing for me, and you can relate to this as a provider, as a, as a doctor, um, not knowing what that next 15 minutes was going to bring, if I was going to crash and burn and have to be rushed to the hospital, that was a nightmare. I called that the Rod Serling nights. So I think you put all that together, and I think I've got at least some chops to talk about COVID. Oh, gosh. I would definitely say you have. See, I didn't know about you. I didn't know that you actually contracted it. What was that like for you? I mean, you did mention a little bit about how it was just brutal, but what did it feel like? Because I think it might be good for the listeners if you feel comfortable yeah. talking about it, of course. Oh, sure, sure, um, of course. That's symptomatic, right? I mean, because I yeah. think that we don't hear that enough, stories from people who actually had it. Right, and that is one thing I learned from the being an AIDS doctor from the early days when there was no treatment. A lot of similarities, and I learned from my patients, as we all do. Uh, when, when AIDS hit in the 80s and we had nothing to offer but hand-holding and watching people die, it was god-awful. And for the oh, patients... And for the patients and their families suffering through this, um, I, there was no more trying time that I've ever had in medicine. What I learned from my patients is two things. One is courage and, and ability to sort of hunker down and, and just try to get to the next day. And that I saw what they went through not having any treatment for the disease that they had. And that's what it was like with COVID. When I had it, I totally related firsthand to what I'd observed with HIV. And the second thing is that it was very important to go public with the story because it puts a face and in, in a, in a, a story behind the disease. And so people can relate to that much more than just listing symptoms. So here we go. This is what it was like. I rode back with my son from New York in, in the second week of March. We knew COVID was around, but neither of us thought that he was infected. But turns out, in retrospect, he was. He's a physician up in New York. And we were taking his dog back to Birmingham. And we, so we drove together. I was up in Boston for a meeting. We met up on a Thursday and drove back. The second day of the trip, he started not feeling real well. I didn't make much of it. But when we pulled into the driveway, he started having chills and fever. And we looked at each other and went, uh-oh we know what you've got. And I know what I've had. I, think about this. I was in the car with him for 20 hours. Okay. And we didn't know about masks and what they did to protect us. So we were wiping things down because we knew about that, but we're, he's breathing in the car. It's closed space. It's a little bit chilly outside. So the windows up, that's a perfect, perfect scenario for the virus to be transmitted. 
On the second day being home, I started feeling badly. I knew I had it. We both got tested. We were both positive. His course was very short, about five days, had a little bit of fever, fatigue, lost the sense of smell. But in my case, I had about six days, something like that. And I thought, ah, you know, this isn't too bad. So that sixth night, um, that's when the cytokine storm starts, where just feeling awful and not knowing what the next 15 minutes are going to bring. And then waking up the next morning and feeling kind of normal. Okay, that was it. No problem. I can deal with this. And then as the day went on, as we got to the evening, it was like Groundhog Day, the same damn thing over and over, night after night. And by about the fourth or fifth night, I'm starting to wonder, does this thing ever end? And that's what I see now. I take care of COVID patients in the outpatient clinic now. And it's kind of nice in a backhanded way that I've had it. So when I walk in the room and I say to a patient, uh, yeah, I get it. I know what you're going through. I had this myself. It's like a instant bond and we can connect. And I think it makes me more effective as a provider. Oh, I I definitely can see that making it. It gives you this natural in with them. And I mean, as you know, the, the importance of, um, especially in physical therapy, at least I can speak for physical therapy, patient buy-in is so important. And at the same time, just from a human perspective, understanding that you have that connection with them. And like you said, you said, you called it a backhanded, a backhanded way, um, because you had to go through it in the first place, but on the back end, it, it does end up helping you in terms of your patient care because you truly and genuinely connect with those patients. Yeah. Have you had, have you had any further sort of, you know, symptoms or or post coronavirus i guess syndrome or anything like that since then no i personally have not and i'm grateful for that because it really does exist and mo- a lot of what we're doing in the outpatient clinic is seeing people a month or even up to 2 months after their initial illness where their symptoms of either it's respiratory or cardiac or neurologic uh, or gi there these are things that are lingering that i can't quite figure out why it's there Clearly, the virus has been suppressed. I don't think it's virus. I think what it does is that the virus comes in and messes with the immune system in a way that for some people, the immune system just doesn't come back to normal. And it's almost like an autoimmune disease in some ways where you're trying to figure out what is it attacking and why. We have so much to learn, just so much to learn. We don't know much at all about this infection. What we do, what I can tell you, I do know about it. It's bad. And you don't want to get it. Don't mess around with this. Take it seriously. It is not a hoax. This is real stuff. Yes, please scream it from the mountaintops. You're more than (laughs) welcome to do that on this podcast, especially. Yeah. Um, My wife is a pharmacist and she encounters um, at work people who will, you know, not take it seriously, not wear a mask, suggest or, you know, insinuate that that it's a hoax or whatever. It's not a political issue. It's not an issue of partisan. It's an issue of just common sense. We don't know a lot about the virus, but we know that if you don't get it, you have a pretty high likelihood of not giving it to somebody else. So that's absolutely 100% coming from Dr. Michael Sag, a virologist, people, a virologist. So when you talk about the symptoms and, and how it impacted you, how might it, what do we know about the research and how it might impact even elite athletes in the same way, maybe a different way? What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, there's a risk. And I think especially this is a pro football podcast. So think about it. These are elite athletes for sure. Uh, and a lot of, you know, these guys are big. And we know that the disease tends to manifest itself 
with more symptoms in a more aggressive way in people who are large. Now, now agreed, uh, a pro athlete, a pro football player, it's a lot of muscle mass, but people who are obese or just even a little bit overweight tend to have worse symptoms for reason we don't know. So I'm, I think, uh, and a lot of the pro players are very concerned uh, about the possibility of catching this and then having a rough course. And remember, of course, that these folks than the pros as opposed to college are a little bit older. So the post-viral syndromes that I think you hear most about in the in the professional athletic arena and in somewhat in college is this notion of a myocarditis. And that, what that means is an inflammation of the heart, uh, the heart muscle in particular. And the concern there is that other viruses we know, Coxsackie virus, others, uh, can invade the heart and cause of a myocarditis that in some people, if they're unlucky, can go on to damage the heart muscle so much that the heart muscle stops functioning well into something we call heart failure, where the just the muscle doesn't pump well. But I think for, for athletes, what's probably more concerning is the possibility of what we call an arrhythmia, which means a bad heart rhythm. And sometimes those heart rhythms can translate into sudden death. You might remember several players, professional basketball players or college players in practice or whatever, they just dropped, right? Remember they run down the court and boom, they hit the deck. That's mm-hmm. from an arrhythmia. That's from an arrhythmia. The pro docs are really good about knowing how to monitor for that. That's just one example of what I think <clears throat> the pro athletes are concerned about. Absolutely. And they should be. It's something that they should take very seriously, just like you said. I mean, everybody should take it seriously, especially the people who are risking their bodies and putting themselves in these positions where they might be at risk. So, yeah, basically, it sounds like um, you're saying, you know, this is not something that's going to necessarily go away. You had it, then you and you tested positive, then you didn't have it, you tested negative, and we're going to move forward with life. It sounds like it could continue to 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 follow these athletes for the rest of the season even um and that leads to my second question too is you know is it possible that patients who maybe didn't you know i guess let me back up is there you know what what's the credence to the idea that maybe a, a a person's viral load wasn't high enough to you know become immune as opposed to somebody who, you know, got really sick, had a lot of symptoms and were, were able to build antibodies, et cetera, and then won't test positive again or are unlikely to test positive again. Is there any credence to that? That's a great question. Um, I'll start with saying we don't know for sure. I, I, I will tell you anecdotally from cases I've seen, my own case, uh, I had some pretty significant symptoms, but as I said earlier, not bad enough to go to the hospital. And also I learned from my patients in HIV early on is the volunteer for research study. So I did that on the day I got tested. I volunteered. They drew a bunch of blood and and we've been drawing blood ever since. When they checked my blood about four weeks after my illness, my antibodies were sky high. They were the highest they'd ever observed. Um, I don't know why that is exactly, but um, I was kind of walking around feeling a little bit like a superhero and like invincible. I, you know, I, I can't catch this again. But the, the fact is, number one, that there is a correlation, I believe, between symptoms and the intensity of the immune system response, and therefore potentially the longevity of an immune system response. That said, I don't think the immune system response is long-lasting for this illness. We have lots of coronaviruses in our midst, uh, cold, the common cold, and we can get that again and again. Um, we know that, uh, and like in the case of my son, who also volunteered for the study, his antibodies weren't as high as mine, but they were reasonable, and he had a minor relatively minor illness, 
But guess what? Last month when we had our annual or sorry, monthly check, um, his antibodies were no longer detected and mine have been reduced dramatically. So what does wow. that tell us? Yeah. So let's talk about the meaning of that, if that's okay, for just a second. Oh, absolutely. So here we go. So everyone's hoping for a vaccine. I am too. But along the way, we have to ask the question, if I had this virus back in March, can I get it again? Answer, we don't know. Honestly, we do not know. And so I think it's just as likely as not that I could get this again. Maybe not this month. But let's say in three or four more months when my immunity maybe has waned. So what does that mean? Several bad things. One is that all the people who have had it and thought they were immune, as we say in the South, ain't. <laughs> right? They, <laughs> ain't right. they ain't immune. So that's the first thing. Second thing is um, a lot of people are saying, I heard like the young people, especially on college campuses, there's some outbreaks going on right now from the back to school. And the, a lot of the students are saying, well, I just want to get this and get it over with so I don't get it again. Sorry, that's maybe not the way it is. Thirdly, if somebody has the real thing, has the viral infection, and they can get infected again, what does that tell us about the likelihood of a vaccine working? And not how, good. Right. And how long will the vaccine be effective before you have to give another dose? At least with a vaccine, you can give another dose and not have to go through infection again. But we don't know that yet. So my whole point about vaccine is I'd love it to happen. But right now, my advice to the public is to say, do not count on it. In AIDS, we've been working on a vaccine for over 35 years, and we have had great candidate vaccines that produce wonderful antibody responses. And guess what? You put it into a clinical trial, it didn't protect. So my way of thinking about this right now I'm not counting on any of these vaccines working. So what does that leave us with? We're going to have this virus in our midst for at least another year, maybe two years. I'm going to say that again. Yeah. Say it again. Say it again. Yeah. It's going to be with us for a long time, at least one to two years more. And we're not going to get to that so-called herd immunity, partly because if we did that in the United States, we'd have to have about 220 million people infected, and you just do the math backwards, and that's millions of people who will have died. That is not worth it. We can't go that route. It's poor strategy. We have to contain it in other ways. How do we do that? Masks, yes, they work. Stop doubting that. They work. Everyone should wear them. Wear them, everyone. Social, or I call it physical distance, stay at least six feet apart from people. Thirdly, avoid crowds. For those of you who want to go to the game, the pro game, see whomever, even if they're just letting 20% of the stands in, do not go. Do not go. Ask Herman Cain right now how it feels to go to a large crowd event. He died. The point is, it's not safe. This virus is in our midst. We can't deny it. And my final point is this. You mentioned earlier, this isn't politics, but it unfortunately is. And to me, outside of the obvious 175,000 people in the United States who have died, and this is for reference, August 2020, for 100, that's the biggest casualty, of course. But another casualty of this epidemic is the death of trusted voices. The politics have cast doubt 
on people we should be freaking listening to. Absolutely. And that's Drop the F-bomb. It deserves it. Drop the F-bomb, Doc. It's true. I mean, this is it's fucking nuts what's going on. In every other epidemic that we've encountered, be it the flu or H1N1 or trying to fight Ebola overseas, we trusted the CDC. We trusted Tony Fauci and his colleagues. We trusted people who knew what the hell they were talking about. And now all that's put into doubt because of politics. We have been taken into a rabbit hole, and it literally is killing us. We have to rise above that. So the death of the trusted voice is something we have to find a way to resurrect. And we, just, and we absolutely need some kind of leadership to make that happen. You going to run for office, Doc? No, no, no. It'll be like me and entering into fantasy football. <laughs> Wait, no, I mean, everything that you just said, I couldn't even, I couldn't, all I can do is come in and add two or three or four or five or 10 exclamation marks to everything you just said. You put it a lot more eloquently than I could have. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, my wife's a pharmacist. And so she has some knowledge about what you just discussed. She has some, some perspective that I don't have simply not being on the front lines. And you're even more so you're literally on the front lines of this situation. And so hearing all of that information coming from you to wear a mask, to stay away from crowds. I mean, it just, it makes sense to me. And I mean that from the, from the bottom of my, of my heart, that this is like something that I'm extremely, extremely disappointed has become politicized because the voice of the expert no longer matters. The voice of the, of the person who has put in the work to understand what they're talking about no longer matters. I mean, I'm right there with you. And it, and it, it really does relate to the NFL. People like to scream, you know, to, to sports analysts about sticking to sports, but you can't do that. You can't stick to sports when we're trying to play professional sports when, you know, we haven't eaten our vegetables. I, I don't remember who, who said that. I think that it's uh, God, I wish I could remember who said that sports are like the, the ice cream that Americans want to eat wearing a mask and physically distancing and being quarantined or locked down are the vegetables and we Americans didn't eat our vegetables, but we want our ice cream. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really bringing out some of the worst things in all of us, I'm afraid. And, and us as a society, uh, I, I think back to our, at least my parents' generation, I'm older. Um, and my dad fought in world war two and everyone calls that the greatest generation in a lot of ways it was. And, um, I, I'm kind of, frankly, a little bit embarrassed for us, uh, I, I wonder out loud with the way that we're divided and we fight amongst ourselves, uh, whether we would have even had a chance in World War II if that were happening right now. We, we, they pulled together. Everyone was on the same page. Here we're just pulling apart. And it breaks my heart because we're better than this. We, we need to come together. We should be the United States of America. Right now we're the divided states of America. And it really is heartbreaking. Absolutely. All over a matter that is maybe not completely avoidable or, or in our control, but to a large degree, at least in my opinion, and it sounds like in your opinion, we can we could have started in the driver's seat and we uh, didn't start in the driver's seat. We intentionally chose to sit in the back seat. And a lot of us, unfortunately, have not moved to the front seat. Um, it's It's disappointing. And it does speak to what it means for professional sports moving forward 
simply because it, it you you talked about physically distancing, you talked about wearing a mask, you talked about avoiding large crowds. So what are you, what is your thought on the NFL and the NFL organizations who are still saying they want to bring at least 25% capacity into their stadiums? My advice would be don't do it. Um, look at the NBA. They're doing great. I, I'm, I'm enjoying the games. Uh, I think it's kind of entertaining, the little uh, uh, avatars or whatever they are up in the stands. It's really pretty funny. Um, and, and they create some artificial crowd noise. I, I think that's fine. The, the effort of the players is there. The players are relatively safe. Of all the sports, basketball is one of the ones that has the highest likelihood of transmission within the sport itself. Uh, football is a little bit behind it up there, of course, and, and wrestling, you know, uh, college wrestling, high school wrestling. But right. basketball's there, and they're doing a great job. We don't need the fans in the stands. Sorry. You can actually see the game better on TV anyway. Get Absolutely. a replay, right? So for now, understand. we all should understand this is a pandemic that's beating our ass right now. We're, we're, we're letting the virus drive the bus. That, a sidebar real quick, if it's okay. I, no, have yes, a, I have a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist at, at, at Johns Hopkins who has a lot of uh, patients who have substance use problems. And one of his messages to his patients is, do you want to drive the, you're, you're on a bus on a windy road and mountains and cliffs on each side of you. Now, do you want, do you want to give the driver uh, drivership over to the med- to the drugs you're taking and let them drive the bus, or do you want to drive the bus? Because if you're going to sit in the back seat and let them drive the bus, you're going over the cliff. If you drive the bus, you take control of your life, you take control of the situation, then you got a chance. The same thing true, you mentioned earlier, who's driving? We should be able to drive this. So I'm not going to dwell on the past. I'm not going to say, we did a lot of things I think that were wrong, but today is today. Now we should double down, triple down, and address this virus the right way. Everyone wear a mask. Stay at home if unless you have to go out. We all have to go out. I get that. I'm not saying lockdown again. Stay at home. Wear a mask anytime you go out. Avoid a crowd. Keep your physical distance. Wash your hands periodically. But, a, but stay away from anyone who's not wearing a mask. Why? Because the mask really breaks down. It blocks the the virus that's coming out into the environment. So when I try to explain this to people, I just say, think pig pen from the Peanuts cartoon, right? The the dirty kid with all the dust around him all the time walking around, right? <laughs> I'm gonna have to it, Google it, but but I, I get you. I'm picking up what's okay. written down. All right, all right. So there so there's this cloud around this this character, pig pen. And and so that's what it looks like when somebody's infected. And guess what? The asymptomatic people are transmitting without symptoms by definition. And the peak time of transmissibility in somebody who ultimately develops symptoms is in the 24-hour period before they get sick. So like my son in the car, I'm riding with him at a time, in retrospect, he was at peak transmissibility. It was inevitable I was going to get infected in that situation. And we don't know who's going to get sick or who's infected. So when you wear the mask, you decrease that cloud that somebody's spewing forth. If that person's talking, the cloud is bigger. If they're, if they're singing, it can go up to eight to 10 feet in front Oof, of them. I did not so, know that. Can you repeat that one, please? Yeah, sure. So normally just breathing, it's maybe a foot or two. When you're talking, it might go out to three feet. When you're singing or cheering at a football game or yelling, it can go up to 10 feet. So that's why the physical distance is important. But the mask blocks it. 
it blocks it. It stops it from getting out there. Not every particle, but it makes a 90% difference. And that difference is all the difference in the world in terms of trying not to get infected. So if we all did this, for God's sake, if we all did this, we can get this under control. Alabama, great example, real quick. So we were having a second surge or whatever you want to call it going into July. God awful. Our hospitals were getting overwhelmed. A lot of ICU beds, for example, in Montgomery were, were just overwhelmed, crowded, couldn't get a bed. And then our governor did a bold thing. She declared a mask ordinance. And it took about a week, which is what you'd expect. And our numbers have come down, 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 down. Now they're, they're more than half. They've gone further than half in terms of new cases every day. That totally correlates to when she made that order. It works. It freaking works. So let's do it. Let's start now and get this under control together. We can do it. We can absolutely. It's going to take some. It's going to take dragging some people along. But I think wearing absolutely wearing your mask is the first place to start. So then, man, you're so passionate when you talk about this. Just exactly what I expected from a person who's 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 on the front lines of this. So then, are we? And I had this question worded differently. But I'll ask it now since I'm just as hyped up and excited to talk about it. Are we nuts? For, is the NFL nuts for even trying to function on a semi-normal basis? Are they? What are the chances they can even finish a season then? I don't know. That's the honest answer. If anybody tells you they do know, they're bullshitting you. Nobody freaking knows. But we can make estimates. I think from the NBA example, it can be done. I think if we keep them in a relative bubble, and test frequently. That's important. Know who's infected early and get them quarantined and out of way and keep testing everybody else. That is essential to success. I worry right now a lot about high school football. I, I, I just, I love high school. I played high school football. My son's played high school. It's a, it's a life-changing, incredible educational endeavor and a lot of fun. Absolutely. But, but they're not testing and they can't test. They don't have the resources. And there's right now, I'm sure with the practices and the games that are starting, I know there are, there's exploding epidemic in front of our eyes right now. And what I worry about is that that going back to school, what I consider, consider now, we're going back too early. Um, we're not ready for that, but we did it. Um, and we're going to see those cases in Alabama, I'm afraid, start to uptick again because the kids in high school and in elementary school are going to get infected, bring it home to mom, dad, and grandma, grandpa, and the numbers are going to go up again. It's it's breaking my heart just thinking about it. And I'm not a soothsayer, but you know this is connecting the dots. Um, but coming back to the pros, I think they can do it. I really do. And I, I'm, I'm for it as long as they do it the right way. And it seems like they are. So right now, you, you as you look to camps, they're already in a semi-isolated, you know, condition. They're they're not going home. Maybe they're staying at hotels, depending on where the camps are. There aren't fans anywhere. Um, the reporters are are asked to stay, keep their distance. What's going to happen, or what do you think will happen once they actually start colliding into each other, and some of these fans allow, uh, some of these um, teams allow fans into the stadium? I don't think unless the players are coming within 20 feet or so or less of a fan, I don't, I'm not worried about the fans contaminating the players so much. Um, I prefer, as I've said earlier, for them not to be there. I don't know what we're gaining by that. Um, it's the money. But, it's oh, money. That's I, what they're gaining. Just charge more for the TV. I mean, I don't <laughs> exactly. 
Right? I mean, everyone's that's where the money watch. is anyway. I think any like that's where the money is. Where I'm gonna freaking be. I, I, I'm gonna be watching this thing. I'm excited exactly. about. Right. So it makes it even more valuable. But anyway, um, is if, if the virus can't be transmitted if it's not there. So if they do a good job like the NBA has done and they keep it out, then they're fine. But they are like a tinderbox, right? They are they are dry kindling wood. And, you know, like what's happening, unfortunately, in Northern California right now, these wildfires and these embers jump the road and go to the go to the other side and all this dryness just poof goes into flames. That's what will happen on an NFL team if the ember, if that virus is introduced in some kind of way. So keep the bubble going. I'm sorry, I'm mixing metaphors here, but you get the picture. If they, the virus isn't there, it can't be transmitted. So I don't see much evidence of the virus being on any of these teams right now. Monitor, 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 test, test, test. Quarantine those who are positive. Keep the area pristine and you got a fighting chance. So do you think that with the most advanced testing that's possible, do you, will they have, I know that I recently read about the, uh, the saliva test that is beginning to circulate or making the rounds. What do you know about that? And what's the, uh, the, the fastest test we have available? I think that's a very promising test. Um, we have, uh, I'll get into the weeds just a little bit. I, I don't want to go too long on this, but, um, oh, all right, but there's 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 two basic types of tests or two ways. What we're looking for is nucleic acid. So we're looking for the DNA, in this case, the RNA of the virus, and we're going to amplify it. So that's done by PCR, polymerase chain reaction. The other is an antigen, which is just a protein from the virus. Both of them are mostly obtained from a nasal swab, either the deep nasal swab that goes in almost to your brain, at least it feels like it's there when you get it done, or the anterior anterior one that just kind of tickles your nose, makes you want to sneeze. But either way, what the, we're getting one of those two tests. The saliva test, the one that's coming out of Yale that they've given to the world, which I think is fantastic. They're not making money on it. They just said, here's the technology, run with it, um, is, is a PCR-based test. But instead of having to do a lot of the prep that normally takes time and requires a lot of agents, they're using something called proteinase K. And what that does is it dissolves away the protein and liberates the nucleic acid, the RNA, so that it can be readily accessed. And, and just that simple approach with saliva, you can get a very accurate read. And you, you just have people either spit in a cup or swish and expectorate, swish and spit, and you can do this test. To me, the most important thing, and a lot of doctors and experts have said this, it's the frequency of testing that ultimately will override the pristineness, if you will, of the testing. So even if a test is just a little bit shy of perfect, you test often enough, you're going to get the answers you need. So do you think that the NFL, with good testing, it sounds like, like you said, has a fighting chance? What are the how 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 quickly though? Uh, I'd still I'm still curious. Can those tests come back? Those uh, the one the, the saliva test can be back in three hours. The antigen test, Oof. yeah. The antigen test can come back in 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30. The PCR, the standard one that we mostly do now as a test, is about 24 hours if it's done well. So Man, that's, yes. get, that's getting up. That's that's quick. Right. But, you know, the problem with, you know, everyone's hearing about these horror stories, which are true, that it can take up to 7 to 10 or maybe even 14 days to get a result. The reason for that. Isn't the, the the lab has the equipment? It's not the lab and the equipment. And it's not even the labs and personnel. It's the supply chain. The companies that that have sold 
large machines that require um, that require kits that the manufacturer makes, and that's all they can do. Those kits have gone into short supply, and so they're wet or back ordered, and you can't run a test. So the beauty of that Yale saliva test is that it doesn't require much at all, and certainly no kits. You just order reagents like you would for some um, research lab, and boom, there it is, and you can almost test indefinitely. Yankee so you, ingenuity. Do you think that the NFL should do that with their players? And how often I, do you think they should do it? Oh, I, I know they're already testing, and they're testing about three times a week, and that's probably enough. Um, they, I, again, I think they have a fighting chance. I put my nickel on them having success for the season. It's so interesting to hear you say that they have a fighting chance because it's the most optimistic opinion, um, that I've heard on the, I've, I've also interviewed another, um, he's a pediatrician, not a virologist for disclaimer. Um, and I've talked to, obviously I talked to my wife and I know some other healthcare providers and you also just so happen to be the most qualified person to say that the NFL has a chance. So I mean, that's super encouraging to me. I, I like to hear that. What, what other advice do you have for the NFL? I know you already talked about keeping the areas uh, clean, keeping fans out. Are there anything else that you think the NFL should do to, to make sure that they can actually have a season on a semi-normal basis? Use the blueprint of the NBA. You've already got an experiment that's worked. Do it. Don't get cute. Don't cut corners. Do it the right way. Put people and by that, you need a bubble, right? Yeah, I think a bubble would help. Um, if players want to play, I know it's a sacrifice, but, um, you know, people have served in the military and been away from families for six months. And these guys are getting paid a hell of a lot more than any soldier I've ever met. So put them in a bubble. Um, not, not a lot of this traveling around, no fans. Uh, then you've got a fighting chance. Man, I, that's, I mean, on one note, I'm encouraged because of everything that you just said. On the other hand, I'm not sure if they're going to implement that at this point. Where do you think they go from here? Well, again, I think they have a chance even without doing what I just said. The the kick, the key to all of this is testing. And testing, 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 quarantining when somebody turns positive and monitoring the hell out of it. That's number one. And number two is limiting any exposure to somebody from the outside. Um, so if players are going to go home to their families, I, I get why they're going to want to do that. But every time they go home, it's a risk because the, the family's living a life and they're going out into the community and they may be around people not wearing masks and inadvertently they get infected and bring it home. One of the things that we learned in the last week, so this is breaking news, um, we used to think that kids were relatively immune to the virus, right? I think if I asked you and said, what's a child's chance, of five-year-old's chance of getting infected, you'd probably say much less than an adult. Yes, that's, that would have. We now know that's not true. Kids get infected just about as often as frequently as adults do. And worse, they, they shed about two times more virus than adults do, even people in the hospital, adults. So kids, yeah. are, kids can be super spreaders. Ringing endorsement for children right now, Doc. Yeah, well, it also is not very much a ringing endorsement for sending kids back to school without uh -huh. a lot of plans and without, and without testing. So that's what I'm worried about in Alabama and I guess a lot of other states right now. Uh, I'm concerned that this progress we've made in terms of mask wearing and getting things down could all be reversed in a matter of three or four weeks with, with kids going back to school. I've already mentioned high school football. It, it, that breaks my heart. I mean, it, 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 that touches my soul. Um, I love high school football. I think it's the purest 
one of the purest forms of sport you'll ever see is that. And we might, that's in jeopardy this year. I, and, and imagine those, those high school seniors who played their whole career waiting for this year and it may get taken from them. That, yeah, that's that, breaks heartbreaking. My heart. that is heartbreaking. Absolutely. Man, this has been 42 minutes of absolute pure gold. And I've just been sitting here listening to everything you had to say. And it's been so enlightening. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't think that at the beginning of the conversation, I would walk away with a sense of optimism. But that's sort of what you've given me. Maybe it's because you're in the capital of football and in, in the middle of Alabama. I don't know. Maybe it's because you got you got a lot of charm to you. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm walking away with at least a, a, a sliver of hope. Should there be a sliver of hope that there will be an NFL season then? I don't know. Maybe it's like Jim Carrey's uh, character in Dumb and Dumber. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> That's exactly right. That, right. I think that gift that gets this. So, yep. You're around. saying there's a chance. Okay. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more than Jim Carrey's chance. Um, I, I, I'm i more worried about the college game um, than I am the pro game. Uh, but I, I'm mostly worried at the college level. They're doing, I mean, I'm familiar with UAB and University of Alabama and Auburn, they're doing it the right way. They're testing frequently and they've got the players somewhat in a bubble. But on the campuses right now, I, I'm worried that there's epidemics breaking out. We saw North Carolina, Notre Dame, uh, uh, Oklahoma State. It's going to be everywhere. And and they're going to be you're going to see colleges shutting down one after the other. It's going to be like dominoes falling. And those players who are on those campuses are at risk by just being around the, the folks who aren't being as careful. So again, once that once that pristine environment of a team, a locker room, a dining uh, facility, um, the, the the coaches' conference rooms, whatever it is, once that gets invaded by the virus, this thing is ridiculously infectious. It can just explode through a school, or we saw in Georgia, a camp in three frickin' days. These campers so, came in and went home three days later. Yikes. So then that, that leads me to, to the question that I, I didn't put on the notes for you, but it, I, I've had this conversation um, with Dr. Gene Bramwell too. Um, once flu season hits then, mm -hmm. is there a possibility that the flu season then will even be sort of ramped up or amped up for people who tend, who, you know, unfortunately contract both at, at the same time? Could that affect players who might not be symptomatic otherwise? Perhaps. We don't know. We'll find out. But here's, so, so here's, here's my message about that. How the flu season plays out is really up to us. Truly, really up to us. I'll give you two scenarios. The first is we continue as we're doing now with a lot of people, frankly, acting in a stupid way, not wearing masks, not, not respecting this virus, total disrespect. Then when the flu season hits, we're in a world of hurt because we're going to have COVID patients coming in and patients with influenza coming in, similar symptoms. And what's essential for those of you who haven't been into a hospital since COVID started, COVID patients go on to their own unit. They're not intermingled with other patients. But So the ER has to decide at that moment when they come in, COVID, no COVID. But the influenza patients are also infectious, so we've got to find a place for them. In ICUs, I alluded to earlier for July in Alabama, but ICU beds are precious and they are finite in terms of their availability. Can you imagine an onslaught of COVID patients and influenza patients at the same time? 
Oof. And try, right, and and in Italy, in Italy, in early March when COVID hit them really hard, especially around Milan and northern Italy, there were literally stories and cases true that the ERs were filled, the ICUs were filled, and they had to make decisions in the ER to admit a 34-year-old to take the bed and the ventilator of a 78-year-old and send the 78-year-old home to die. Do we want that? I don't think so. Absolutely not. That's a bad case. Here's a good case. If everyone wore their mask, keep their distance, avoid crowds, we'll shut down COVID. But guess what? That protects against influenza as well. Oh, and by the way, we have a flu vaccine. Let's do that too. <laughs> yeah, the little vaccine everybody's been avoiding every year, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, the same people avoiding the flu vaccine every year. I can't wait for the COVID vaccine. Well, wake up. We got a vaccine. For Same food. thing, buddy. <laughs> Let's take it. Let's use it. So I, I'm I'm going to be optimistic there too. I'm I'm going to believe in the American spirit. I'm going to believe that down deep we are good, and down deep we are smart. And what we need is to come together as a country and get our act together from this point forward, and do all the things we know to do. And if we do that, COVID will keep coming down. Influenza will be mitigated, and we'll have a decent autumn and 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 winter and pro football will be here and we'll be not happy but we'll be happier than uh if we were suffering with the diseases and pro football was discontinued absolutely doc this has been absolutely illuminating it really has been enlightening and my favorite interview that i've done so far no offense to any of my other guests oh thank you it's it's been fun um Again, I'm so glad you 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 decided to to reach out to me when I put that tweet out to say that you wanted to come on as a guest. I again, as a physical therapist, I understand the language. I can't say I speak the language. Um, so it's nice to have somebody with your expertise and your understanding of this entire situation um, as best as we can, of course. And I think that your measured, uh, reasonable opinion and stances on how we can potentially finish an NFL season, what it might take for players to, you know, stay, you know, relatively healthy. Uh, I think it's more than reasonable. I, I really think that um, it can happen too. you've got me walking away with a lot of optimism. So I'm not going to push any further. I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm going to leave it at that. But I do want to give you the floor. Um, you've, you've made a lot of great points that I've got, got me pounding my fist over here with while I'm on mute. I'm excited for him, but I'm just going to give you the mute. You, I didn't put this on the notes, but what I do with my guests usually is I say, give one bandaid of advice. We're on the injury prone fantasy football podcast. So give one, one bandaid of advice. It can be fantasy football related, which obviously you don't play. So that's okay. It can be anything related. I have a feeling I know what you might reiterate, but you can go a different direction if you want. What's one piece of advice, one bandaid of advice you have for the listeners. Let, let me do two, if that's okay. Absolutely. Well, the first is the obvious wear a mask, keep your distance, Stay away from crowds. Let's do this together. The second thing is a compliment to you and to all physical therapists. What you guys do is is freaking magic. And if if we would use physical therapy more, we wouldn't have the opioid epidemic that we have. We would have people who are functional. All of us who are getting older, which is all of us, but especially as you go into your 40s, 50s, 60s, Staying, keeping your core strong, keeping your body well, and is in doing the right kind of training exercises, physical therapy or trainers is critical to functionality. And I've had so much success referring my patients with pain, especially chronic pain, to physical therapy 
it 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 blows the hell out of any opioid I've ever used. And by the way, opioids have never, ever, ever been proven to work for chronic pain. They work for acute. You break your leg, okay, fine. But if you have chronic pain, find out what's causing it. Go to somebody who knows what they're doing that way. And if once the physical damage is assessed, go to a physical therapist and you will get much, much better. That's my tip of the hat to you. I appreciate that a lot, Doc. That that really means a lot coming from you. Um, however, don't downplay your role in this entire situation, this pandemic. Um, I really appreciate the compliment. I'm bad at taking compliments. So I'm just going to turn the spotlight back to you. Um, you have been absolutely amazing. You've been great. And and I think that this, is gonna, this podcast is going to get a ton of downloads. People want to know what the skinny is when it comes to their fantasy football, even when it comes to just the general uh, pandemic in general. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. I honestly wanted to tell you this before we stop recording because I, I want to thank you for putting yourself in the position of of being a, a research subject for this. I think that goes unheralded as well. Uh, you saw the issue. You volunteered to give your blood, your time, and your energy to be a, a research subject. We couldn't. We know very little about this virus, like you mentioned earlier. But we would know even less if it weren't for people like you. So as a provider. As a, as a, as a physical, you know, provider, I thank you for that, for doing what you do with the patients on the front lines. And just as a human, I thank you for volunteering yourself to be a subject in the research. Thanks so much. It's been great being with you. Absolutely. Thanks again, doc. So everybody make sure you go follow Dr. Michael Sag on Twitter. He is at M Sag MD. Um, I'm going to be putting this out almost immediately as soon as we finish recording it, cause I'm so excited about it. That's it for tonight. Thanks for listening.